0: We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 6. In chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6, we find the Philistines are sending the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, and they're using two lowing milk cows to pull this cart. And they're lowing, and they're Bellering because they have been separated from their baby calves, and I talked a little bit about that last week. But the motherly inst- instincts of a cow is fascinating. It's interesting to watch the behavior of mama cows and how each cow will call to its calf with its own particular moo. And each calf knows its mother's moo. (laughs) Not all cows have a good, strong moo. (laughs) Bella, she's the hardiest of our cows, and I've counted 14 continuous moos. That's her tops, 14. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and on she goes, 14 in a row. Now, I have a new cow without a name, 917. has got an ear tag. <laughs> she can't move very well. In fact, she more, more or less grunts. But each calf knows its mother's move. And these Philistine milk cows... They're lowing, they're mooing as they pull this new cart with the Ark of the Covenant on it as they go down the road away from their calves. And that is contrary to cow behavior. And it's sort of fascinating that God will put it in the heart, you might say, of a cow to go where he directs it. But this is a definite sign to the Philistines and to the Israelites that are at Beth Shemesh. The ark, (coughs) excuse me, has been in Philistine cities for seven months. It has brought death. It has brought painful tumors. And the Philistines want to rid themselves of this ark of God so they can continue their sinful behavior in the worship of Dagon, their idol. Dagon, remember, he was half fish and half man. They set the ark before Dagon. He fell twice and broke himself up, fallen down before the ark. But the Philistines don't escape this knowledge. They still choose sinful pleasures Of Dagon worship. And yet he lies in a broken heap. There in their temple. Where he fell before the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines will not repent. They prefer living. In their sinful state. They refuse to turn to God and repent. Just this past week, and maybe you like me, you you don't watch a lot of news anymore, but on the news they were applauding this former heroin addict and how he has been clean for three years. And they interviewed this addict and uh, he was not having a moral breakdown using drugs, but drugs in uh, addictive form were uh, a disease. So the message was, you may have a disease, so seek out this particular rehab clinic and you can be rehabilitated. And I thought, consider this. Consider their message. Sin of addiction is no longer a moral issue. It's a disease. Because you can't help yourself. Well, I'm I'm old school to say the least on that topic. But our philosophies of do-good clinics... And uh, they don't try to reframe the person from sinful habits. But they have a message. And their message is, be smart, be safe. In whatever you're involved in. So you don't dare try to teach a young person then to abstain from sexual activity. You just tell that young person... You can't help but sin, just be safe. What a message to go out to our young people. Our country, United States, in the past, would not give health aid to any government who did not meet the mandates of safe sex. Or if need be, even abortions. The U.S. buying into promoting what we call safe sex versus the high moral ground of abstinence. We don't teach abstinence, we teach be safe. Don't dare tell someone not to sin. Wow. And I couldn't agree with our government less on that issue. And some of our foreign policies on disease control are are absolutely appalling to me. But the Philistines have God himself bringing upon them diseases related to their sinful behavior. The Philistines clearly understand their sexual activity in Dagon worship was offensive to the living God. So, what was their solution? Well, let's rid ourselves of God's ark. Let's remove, quote unquote, the presence of God via the ark and send it down the road. I can remember as a wee little lad, I can remember back that part. And our house that we lived in was built upon these little concrete block and brick stilts on a hillside. And I would go up underneath our house and play sometimes. But I remember asking my mom, can God see under our house? My mother had a good response. Why? What have you been doing? (laughs) It was a good question. When our behavior is wrong or sinful, we we hope that God doesn't see us. And I honestly don't remember why I ask about God seeing under our house. It could have been okay. <laughs> I could have been innocent, but probably wasn't. But consider this. Why are nightclubs nightclubs? Mm. Why are honky-tonks so dimly lit? You're in the honky-tonk area here in the south, by the way. Why does most crime occur at night? Well, let me read you John 3, 19 uh, through 24. You don't have to turn it. I'll read you three verses. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness. Rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who comes to the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and they have been done in God. Darkness is a cloak of evil behavior In these verses we clearly see that mankind evil mankind loves darkness Therefore the Philistines want the ark of God out of their territory because their deeds are evil the Philistines live and prefer darkness But the presence of God via the ark, condemns them. Israel, on the other hand, is delighted to have the ark come back to Israel. So let's read in our text this morning how Israel, even though delighted, they're a little too casual, they're a little too uh, disrespecting of the ark as they should be. So... 1 Samuel 6, verses 14 through 20. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh, and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which there was the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. Then the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings, and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging, "...to the five lords, both the fortified city and the country villages, even as far as the large stone at Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, speaking of God, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck fifty thousand and seventy men of, of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord has struck the people with a great slaughter. The Ark of Kurdjath Jerem and the men of Bethshem said, Who is able to stand before the holy Lord God? And who shall it and to whom shall it go up from us? Israel, even though they're God's people, They have fell into a casual uh, disrespect. They've seen the Philistines and, well, they were better than the Philistines. But their allegiance to God has grown very ordinary. The ark was assembled, given to Israel via Moses and it has been returned after seven Months with the Philistines and in those seven months the Philistines were plagued with all these tumors and so forth and sickness and all this and now the ark comes back to Israel. You know it's on a new cart. By the way that was a pagan transportation method. <laughs> and Israel. Curious. Wanted to see if the ark was okay. So they look into it. They lift the seat, the mercy seat, and look into the ark. And they learn the hard way God does not need man's protection, man needs God's protection. They were trying to watch out for God. And they were curious, you know, are, are the things of the ark, are they still in there? Are the Ten Commandments in there? Is Aaron's rod in there? You know, is the manna bowl in there? And they must look into it. Their inquiring minds brings a great slaughter from God. <clears throat> Have you ever tried to bend, be God's reputation protector i've fallen into that trap there was a period of time in my life i would try to make my christian beliefs very reasonable it was the reasonable way to go god was reasonable and uh i tried to be his uh fair play spokesman you might say But it's good for us to understand the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark was known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat covering the Ark and the elements of the law that we talked about were in there. The Ten Commandments on stone, Aaron's rod, and so forth. And there's a symbol here. Be careful never to remove God's mercy and seek the law or God's judgment. Be careful when you remove that mercy seat. Be careful when you want justice versus grace and mercy. I do not want God's justice. I want his mercy and i'm sure you agree with that mercy and grace are god's goodness to us israel they're struck they're struck with a great slaughter by god when their religious leader their priest seek to see if the law was well taken care of they're removing the mercy seat and looking to the law And the symbolism here is not overlooked by God for a moment. Israel being struck with a great slaughter. God giving not only Israel, but the whole world a graphic example via the Ark of the Covenant. And his message is mercy and grace. That's what you want from me. You don't want the law. You want mercy and grace. It's my preferred attributes to believers over the law. But here is Israel. They're curiously looking into the ark. They're curiously wanting to go back to the law for comfort. There is no comfort in the law. The law condemns. But there's a tendency with us Christians, for any of us that's been saved for more than a week and a half, to become legalistic. And our thinking goes something like this. I'm a believer. And I'm heaven bound. So let's tighten up the requirements for future believers. Do they qualify? Do they deserve grace and mercy like we do? <clears throat> I had an older gentleman from another denomination ask me about Calvary chapels. And he says, do the Calvary chapels or does your church in particular Give no donations and help homeless people? Or do you help people that are unemployed? And sometimes you know when a question is loaded. (laughs) He's ready for an argument. And I said something generic like, well, some people are disabled and can't work. What do you do with them? Some people want to work and can't find work. What do you do with them? And I closed down our conversation with, if I err, and we all do err, I want to err on the side of grace. I want to be found graceful regardless. Because we always don't know the circumstance of why someone can't work or can't find work. But none of my words convinced this fellow. And the religious leaders, during Jesus' day, they had a problem with grace, too. But they had added to the law so thoroughly and so completely that the average Jew, the average man on the street, the average uh, Jewish person, did not even know the law, much less try to be obedient to the law. And the religious leaders, they, they find Jesus uh, a thorn in his side because he teaches grace and mercy. And Jesus is very popular at, at, at this time, and people are flocking to hear Jesus as he expounds upon his father's kingdom or God's kingdom. And the Jewish scribes and Pharisees desperately want to make Jesus look sinful or look bad. And they want to make him look like he's breaking the Mosaic law. So turn with me to John chapter 8, and we'll read 12 verses there in John chapter 8. John 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, "'He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in his midst. When Jesus has raised himself up, no one but the woman was there. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What a scene! And it's in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees, they bring a woman caught, caught in the very act of adultery. Question, how did they catch the woman and not the man? But only the woman is brought before Jesus. Brought before Jesus as a lawbreaker. And they quote Moses, They quote the law to Jesus, and their reading of the law was, Moses commanded, there's no room for grace there in the way they present this. Moses commanded that she be stoned. But they've already shown partiality. They have shown the man that was caught with her, Mercy, but not the woman. Only the woman is condemned. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they're testing Jesus to try and accuse him of not obeying the law. Yet they've already broken the law. So Jesus, what do you say? Jesus doesn't answer him. He stoops down and he writes on the ground, and it says, as though he did not hear them. Jesus, in his own way, is taking control of the whole situation just by stooping down and writing on the ground. The Pharisees, they won't give up. They're adamant. They press the issue. And Jesus rises up and he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Let me give you my translation. If you're going to judge this woman of breaking the Mosaic law, then you should not be a lawbreaker yourself. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground again. In verse 9, notice verse 9. Then those who heard it, those who heard Jesus' word, or those who read Jesus' words, it really doesn't matter. They were convicted. The ones who saw him writing or listened to him are convicted. Jesus has just declared, He who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Now, the only one without sin is Jesus, of course. And he convicts the woman's accusers. What is conviction? Being guilty of sin and feeling the guilt of that sin. And with that, with the conviction of this crowd around her condemning the woman, the oldest to the youngest begin to leave in an orderly method. They're leaving. This judgmental mob now is Deserting this woman, starting with the oldest. So, what does Jesus write that they heard it? What is he writing on the ground? Allow me a little speculation, and it is speculation. But they are convicted. So, you know he's writing something that gets their attention. Are they convicted of? They're convicted of breaking the law. A little more speculation. This woman, most likely, was a prostitute. Jesus, in my humble opinion, he is naming names. And he's naming names of those who have been with this very woman that they condemn. And we have this orderly exit by convicted accusers. You know we all can act self-righteous until we're convicted of sin. It's very humbling to realize that you're sinful at times. Same thing with this woman's accusers. Jesus raises himself up. And notice the woman is still there. She could have left. She has no accusers. She could have left the scene. And Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Three word answer. No one condemned. Lord. What a beautiful answer. This woman, who the religious leaders wanted to stone, she wants Jesus to forgive her. Therefore, she has stayed behind. She stayed right there with her Lord on the scene. The woman who was condemned by the Pharisees and scribes, wants the only one who can forgive her to forgive her. And she receives her desired forgiveness from the sinless one, from the one who never broke the law. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. That's words every sinner wants to hear from Jesus. But Jesus has a message for her. He tells her, go and sin no more. Don't return to your sin, lady. Live a believer's life. The law condemns. Paul said he wouldn't have known he was a sinner except for the law. The law condemns. Jesus, the light of the world, tells all who would be condemned by the law, go and sin no more. Great challenge. But we do sin. We don't want to necessarily, but we do sin. Hang around, And have the one who never sinned be the one that forgives you. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll have people in the prayer room who would be more than happy to pray with you. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for healing. Whatever your need is, we want to be lifting up our prayer to the one who heals. Amen.